You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Guidepost. Willie Goldsmith here, and glad to have you all with us. Uh, Before we get going on the topic of the day, I just want to give a heartfelt thanks to all the striped bass fishermen, businesses, supporters who are out there um, who provided their own public comments on Amendment 7. Uh, As many folks know, uh, that was a long process, a very demanding process to get public comments in in order to help push the needle toward conservation for striped bass in the long term. Um, We are recording this podcast a couple days after the public comment deadline on April 15th, uh, and we're thrilled to be CC'd in over 500 public comments, folks who submitted their comments and CC'd us, uh, and also um, submitted a letter with over 90 businesses and organizations that lent their support to our positions. Uh, This was a hugely complicated document and Herculean effort, um, and just really hugely supportive of everybody. So again, thank you all uh, for being part of the process. And we're hopeful for a positive outcome in a, in a few weeks at the May uh, Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission meeting. And so with that, um, we actually have one of our co-signers on that letter um, with us today, but we're not here to talk about stripers. We're here to talk about Tatog. So we have Greg Vespi, Executive Director of the Rhode Island Saltwater Anglers Association with us. And we're going to talk about some of his efforts that have been going on in the, the uh, great state of Rhode Island around Tatog conservation. So welcome to the guidepost, Greg. Thanks very much, Willie. I'm looking forward to t- today's conversation. It's it's great to have you here, and I think uh, you were just on you were just on a little adventure down to Florida, weren't you? I was. I was. I got to do a little bit of grass flats fishing off of Pine Island, so just a little bit above Naples. That sounds all right. What, yeah. what was uh, what was the highlight? You had some specs down there. What else? You had some kind right. of cool stuff going on, right? Yeah, right. That's always the beauty of Florida. You you never quite know what you're going to get on the. Um, you know, we say that about up here in New England, but it's really true down in Florida. So speckled trout, you know, were, were kind of the the primary quarry, but we picked up some Cravalli jacks. We got a beautiful bonnethead shark. My my dad, at 84 years of age, had never caught a bonnethead shark before, and he got his first one. So he was very excited about that. They're fast, you know. People, you'll you know, they're shrimp eaters, right? So you'll yeah. be fishing for bonefish and you'll see one, and people get disappointed, but they are fun to catch in the shallow water. They streak all over the place, and it's pretty entertaining. Yeah, no, he was thrilled that it's a. They have pretty good stamina. I mean, it it put up a good fight on like twelve pound twelve pound spinning gear. It uh it made him work for it. So yeah, he was excited, and you know, we had the usual um kind of some some blue runners some some jacks some lady lots of ladyfish we we did really well on on the ladies and um i got a picked up a nice spanish mackerel which i didn't expect too that managed not to bite me off so i was pretty excited about that awesome man that sounds like a a pretty fun trip as we're dealing with i feel like the second coming of winter here all of a sudden on the in the northeast and mid-atlantic so definitely jealous of your trip but uh glad to have you back and you know i think before we really dig into the issue, Greg, it would be great to just kind of share a little bit about yourself. Obviously, you know, we've gotten to know you pretty well in your new role at, at RISA over the past couple of months. And, you know, it'd be great to just share with listeners a bit about yourself and kind of how you came into this role. Sure. I'll, I'll, that's I've been in the role now since November. And uh, unfortunately, that was 
predicated with the loss of, of Steve Medeiros, who um, founded RISA. But I've been very um, fortunate enough to be able to try to uh, pick up the reins. And uh, I've got a lot of support. So since November, I've kind of been uh, in the role as executive director. Um, prior to that, I had been on the board and um, had had some roles in charge of committees and things, but not not uh, at this level, certainly. Um, I'd also been fortunate enough to been president of the uh, Quidnick Island Striper team for about five years. So I had a little bit of an idea on how to run a, a much smaller organization, you know, club, fishing club. Um, but in general, it's certainly been a learning curve of an experience from day one, but very enjoyable. Awesome. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, we're, we're glad to have you, Greg, obviously it was a, a huge tragedy losing Steve last year and, you know, just a, a huge legacy and big shoes to fill given all the, the incredible conservation work that he had done in the state of Rhode Island and, and beyond. Um, but I know, you know, we're certainly thrilled to have you in this role. I know, you know, Rissa's members are as well, um, you know, fighting on the side of the fish and fighting for conservation. So um, I'm curious if you can tell us, you know, a bit more about, you know, where you came from, because you're not a Rhode Islander, Greg, right? You're not a native Rhode Islander. Right. No. And, and I get reminded of that fairly frequently. <laughs> I'm sure you do. Uh, especially at meetings and hearings when, yeah. But right. So I, I started off in New Jersey, as it seems like a fair number of Rhode Islanders these days have. Um, which again, I get reminded of as well. Um, but yeah, I grew up on the Delaware River. Uh, so I say on an outgoing tide, kind of, I, I learned to fish current. Uh, I just wasn't used to having the current come back at me every, you know, six hours. Um, but that was my start and it was a good start. And then I've been really fortunate both from uh, between my family and then my time in the Navy. I was, I've been able to kind of fish up and down the East Coast, a uh, little bit on the the West Coast, and uh, I lived in Washington State for a half dozen years, so I got a little bit of the steelhead and salmon fishery out there. Um, fished a little bit in the Gulf of Mexico. The Navy took me to Iceland, so I've done a little bit of fishing out there. And just in general, I've been blessed to have a little bit of experience kind of up and down both coasts. So hopefully that helps give me a little bit of a perspective. And, um, you know, everyone there's so many different ways to manage fish and, and it's neat to see how other states have handled fish that to them are, are important. Um, you know, I, I've really tried to pay attention to the rules and regs everywhere I lived to understand kind of what their approach was. And it is neat. There, there's definitely different approaches um, throughout the country on, on how to manage fish. So yeah. hopefully that's helped me a bit. Yeah, for sure. I think there are definitely lessons learned, you know, both for for better or for worse from from different perspectives. And, you know, you, you see what strategies are put in place and then what the outcomes are. And it's great to have kind of that that broad perspective on on what works and what doesn't and kind of what your you know, what your guiding philosophy is on these things. So um, that's awesome to hear. And, you know, can you I think many listeners are familiar with Rissa. Certainly, you know, we have worked closely with you guys on a number of issues. Um, but just in terms of a, a general overview, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the Rhode Island Saltwater Anglers Association, how long you guys have been around, you know, how many people you represent and kind of what your what your general attitude is when it comes to management and conservation? Sure. So I believe we're in our 26th year um, as an organization. And currently we have right around 2000 active members. So it's one of the larger organizations on the East Coast. We also have um, 28 affiliate clubs, which which also has 
um, help to add to our ability to um, help with legislation. And so that encompasses another seven and a half thousand members. Um, so there's times where we speak, you know, just for our club, but there are also times where we try to represent the region as best we can. And in that case, we're probably representing close to nine and a half thousand anglers. Um, so that, you know, so it is a responsibility that we don't take lightly and we do our best to try to make decisions that are, are science-based, um, also keeping in mind our anglers. And, and I have to always remember our first priority is if we are a fishing club and, you know, and our anglers like to catch fish. So I, I always try to never lose sight of that. That's certainly one of my goals is, is to not lose sight of that on the same hand, the more responsible we can be and the more we can help educate our members on the decisions that, that need to be made, especially when there's hard decisions that have to be made. Um, I think we're the better off for it. So, so that, that's our goal is to make science-based decisions, but not lose you know, sight of the fact that we're a fishing club. Um, and, and so we try to balance that. Sometimes it's an easy balance. Sometimes those decisions go hand in hand. Um, sometimes those decisions are a little harder right? You know, to sometimes a spoon of medicine at times, you know, doesn't always go down well. Um, but we, we, honestly, we do our best to, to try to find that. And when we can find a topic that really fits both, both sets of criteria, um, boy, we can, we can make some hay. And, and that's kind of what happened with, we think with, with blackfish. Yeah, I know. I, I think absolutely. And we can, we can get into the, into the weeds of kind of what you guys have been doing in a minute too. But I think, I think you, you bring up a really good point because often in fisheries management, we might not always like to think of it this way, but we, we tend to be pretty reactive, right? We tend to kind of not really take action until it's abundantly clear that we need to do that when there's something that's in trouble and we need to try to bring it back. And, you know, it would be great if in some cases we can try to kind of bring the balance back toward the center where it's not just when things are doing badly that we take action. If there's something going well, we want to keep it going well to also think, think about being more precautionary and forward thinking there. And I think what you guys have done in Rhode Island is a great example of that, where just because you know, you're not in a sky is falling scenario doesn't mean that you can just kind of rest on your laurels and, and hope that things will continue to be good. Um, and so I think that's a really admirable way that you guys have done, um, gone about addressing what's going on in your state. And you know, with that, it would be great to hear a bit more about TOG, you know, tell us about the fishery you guys have there. I know, certainly I grew up going down there and, and catching those things are a ton of fun. Um, I think, you know, certainly some of our listeners are familiar with blackfish or TOG or whatever you call them. Um, but tell us about them. Yeah, you know, they, they've always held a special place for me because when I grew up, the uh, Shrewsbury Rocks in New Jersey, you could go fishing in December and January and, and catch fish. And and by that time, the cod fishery there had kind of gotten in trouble. So people were like, you know, what are you going to fish for in December and January in Jersey? And the answer was blackfish. And so I've always they've always had a special place kind of in my heart. And I came up to Rhode Island and it was, I was like, holy cow, there's blackfish everywhere here, right? There's like, you know, if you guys don't realize, like there's blackfish everywhere. And, and not only me though, the, the population and anglers in Rhode Island, particularly over the last 10 years, as our fall run for striped bass has kind of changed and it seems like it's a little more offshore now. And so there haven't been as many that you could just go get from the shore in the surf as there once was. Um, 
as that fishery has kind of changed, the people here in Rhode Island have more and more started to focus on on blackfish in the fall as kind of our our predominant fall fishery. Uh, Coupled with all the technology improvements with fishing rods, these carbon fiber lighter rods have really allowed people to take blackfish, which were originally, even though they were always considered hard fighting, were, were really considered table fare fish predominantly. And now all of a sudden you've got these light rods and the explosion of jig fishing for, for blackfish has also kind of, again, over the last 10, probably over the last five years has really exploded. And let's, let's talk about, let's talk about that, Greg. I think when some people hear jig fishing, they might think something a little bit different than what you guys have got going on out there. So what, what does that fishery look like? Yeah. So, so right. The traditional fishing rig for blackfish for years and years was basically some sort of a, you know, six to 10 ounce sinker um, and usually one or two hooks. And you would typically put crab, certainly in the fall. And maybe like 10 years ago, this fishery where you use a, a, a lead head jig on the bottom still, like you don't jig it or move it really, but you put a crab on the jig and you was, so it's almost basically like a sinker with a hook attached and you literally flip it out on the bottom and, and let it rest. You can move it a little bit. Um, but that fishery, which is called basically jigging for tog, uh, where the jigs are kind of multicolored and bright colored, but they're designed just to hold a single piece of crab and has become very, very popular. And you can use much lighter gear. You can, a heavy tog jig might be considered three ounces. A uh, light one would be half ounce to an ounce. And that fishery where you're using either spin tackle or very light conventional gear, and you're flipping out these jigs into the rocks or along the edge of a wreck or, you know, on broken bottom, has become so popular um, that it it has kind of spawned this renaissance of black fishing. Um, you could almost and, you could almost say they're a sport fish, right? I mean, yeah. Come on. Oh, I'm telling you, on on these light carbon fiber rods and you know and these setups, they are fun, um, and they release well, right? They're probably one of the toughest. Anybody that's fished for blackfish kind of realizes they're pretty tough fish. I mean, you still have to treat them kindly you can't kick them around the boat, but, 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 to, they make, are, but to make a living in that kind of environment. Um, it's yeah. Tough fish. Yeah. Well, and, and they do release well and they um, have shown to also be not overly migratory. So they will go in and out of the bay, you know, out into the ocean and offshore, but they tend to stay fairly close to home and they tend to return. So one of the interesting things with blackfish is that, on a state level, if you protect it and take care of it, theoretically, those fish will continue to be there and come back to you. You don't have to worry about other states' regs, you know, further down the coast. It's a much, from a fisheries management standpoint, I think it's it's heaven sent because that, you know, the, the fish population is largely whatever each state makes of it, give or take a little bit, but... And and to be clear, I the um the management structure at the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission kind of reflects that, right? Because we have kind of these right. four different um you know complexes of Tatog. You've got you know the Mass Rhode Island, Long Island Sound, um, the New York New Jersey area, and then you know the Delmarva uh, area as well. So kind yep. of reflecting that, it's good to see you know that 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 structure aligning with with the way that the that the that the population is is um is structured basically. So. Uh, to your yep. point, it's kind of it's kind of your fishery, and it's on you guys to protect it, right? 
Right. And, and that was really one of our strongest points when we went to the Rhode Island Fisheries Council and asked for some proactive changes. Our point was, these are our fish. If we take care of them, we will continue to have fish to catch in the future. If we don't, we don't. And, you know, shame on us. It's not going to be, we can't blame a gillnet off the Carolinas. We're not going to be able to blame, you know, we're only going to be able to blame ourselves if this fish fishery disappears or runs into trouble. And it's, and it's um, worth pointing out too, Greg, I think, you know, like many of our fisheries that, that we love, you know, this is, it's not entirely, but it's predominantly a recreational fishery, right? So again, back to the finger right. pointing, um, you know, this is on us, right? It's, it's our fishery to enjoy, but it's also our fishery to conserve. And so trying to think of those yeah. things in tandem is really important. Yeah. Historically, it's one of the few fish that recreational anglers have a large percentage of the catch allotted towards them. Um, there wasn't a particularly big black fishery, a commercial one. And so that has, in this case, really allowed recreational fishing to um, have the lion's share of the quota. And again, it, it's, you know, we're not going to be able to blame draggers or, you know, it, it's us. If we take care of it, it's us. If we don't, it's us. Um, and, you know, they're, they're great fish. I mean, they're great for tagging studies. We've had anglers tag and catch the same fish the same day. Like they are amazing. They're, they're also not the brightest fish, which yeah. also for, yeah, people, no. for people like me, that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're uh, Tog will not end up in the Mensa <laughs> society, um, but, but they're great fish, you know, and they have personalities and, and, and so we're, we're definitely not against people catching them to eat. Like that was one of the things we wanted to make clear. Um, we understand it's a wonderful table fare fish. You can cook it so many different ways our intention was to be able to have them so you can keep catching them and keep, you know, eating them years down the road. I mean, that was really part of our push was we, we don't want to be misconstrued into turning this into something that you can't keep and eat, but we also need to be responsible for them. They're incredibly slow growing fish. Um, and the popularity that they have generated over the last five years has, has not only brought in many, many anglers, but it's supporting tackle. Like right now, the backbone of, of Rhode Island anyway, fishing in the fall and the winter is, is blackfish. That's what's keeping the tackle shops open. You know, that's what's what's keeping the charter captains busy. Um, it's a great fish for charter captains because it's fairly reliable. They don't, they will change depths as the season progresses, but you can pretty much guarantee if you're a good captain, you're gonna find blackfish on a charter now you may have a little bit of trouble getting them to bite more than others but you'll find them like they're you know good captains it, you can follow these fish um so it's a wonderful fish for a charter captain because they can feel fairly confident they can put clients on fish the downside of that is it's a very reliable fish so the very good charter captains know they're gonna you know <laughs> be able to go find them and sit on double-edged sword yep 100 percent. Right. You know, they're not just going to be randomly swimming around the bay, you know, or the ocean. Um, but thankfully, a bunch of the captains that are considered really some of the best of the best captains um, recognize that if you want to catch a trophy blackfish right now, you're either going down to Delaware and the northern part of Maryland or you're coming to Rhode Island. Like those are the two. Not that you can't catch a big blackfish anywhere. You certainly can. But if you're a trophy blackfish hunter. Those are the two spots that you mark, you know, on your map. And they recognize that, that clients are coming from New Jersey. Clients are coming from further south, from below Jersey to up to, to Rhode Island to fish for tog in the fall. 
Uh, you know, we had one day last year where two 20 pounders were caught in the same day. I mean, it's just, it's an amazing fishery right now. And these captains recognize though, that that's not going to be the case if we, if, if we aren't proactive a bit, if we wait for the math to tell us Tagger overfished, um, and for the science and the, the biologists to say, you've got to take a cut, the, the, we'll still have blackfish, but the fishery that we have now will be gone. The, you know, this incredible trophy fishery with a mix of year classes where you can get everything from one pounders to 20 pounders. Um, that's what we really wanted to protect this kind of healthy mix of year classes. And um, some non-charter, non-RISA member charter boat captains approached us, some RISA member charter boat captains, and, and we kind of got together. And with the rest of our recreational anglers who, who could see this explosion of um, interest and in pressure on these fish. And when did this start happening, Greg? Like when did these conversations kind of start coming into the forefront? So probably like I'd say three or four years ago, there started to be a push maybe a little bit longer than that, where some of the captains were encouraging clients to release the, the largest fish, particularly the, the female blackfish. That probably, you know, five years ago started to not be unheard of. And, and then over the last, with COVID in the last three years where fishing was one of the things you could do, you know, here in New England, it was one of the areas that it seemed like everybody realized, well, I can go fishing. I, I might not be able to go to a concert. I might not be able to go to a Celtics game, but I can go, you know, go fish. And so it was obvious that the pressure in the fall and these fish was just exploding and people really started to say, geez, you know, what can we do to take care of this fish? So this fishery stays what it is and doesn't collapse under its own weight. Um, so that was kind of the start of it. But I, I would say, you know, five years ago, if you start looking on social media and things, you could see posts where some of the better captains started to, to say, Hey, you know, we'll get you your limit. Don't worry about that. But but maybe maybe you don't need a 16 pound female to to end up on the deck to be filleted. And just just to pause there quickly, Greg, I know we've we brought this theme up in other podcasts, but I think this idea, you know, you'll often hear folks in the for hire community argue, you know, for or against something because it's what their clients want. And I think the point that you're bringing up is that, you know, a lot of these guys, they're they're who folks look to, right? They're kind of the, the role models and, the you know, the, the trendsetters, right? Um, on social media, on the boat, you know, everywhere, you know, at seminars, what have you. And so I think there's a lot of, you know, potential influence to be had there, um, you know, on the side of conservation that, that often can be lost. So it's really, you know, it's great to hear that because I think it's happened with fluke up there too, right? We're like, you know, these are not fish that you would typically consider being, being, you know, a, a grabbing grin and, you know, and, you know, quick photo and then release type fish, but you're seeing it with some of these big fish. And it's, it's a, a really interesting and encouraging, you know, change in mentality. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that's starting to... I would say over the last right two years now, you're starting to see people that catch these big fluke. I saw some videos of uh, multiple 10 pounders being released this last summer, which I'd never seen before. So I do think you're right. There's a, a push that no one's trying to say, you know, you can't take a fish home for dinner, um, especially a fluke or, or a tog. But on the other hand, when you look at a 16 pound blackfish, its value is so much more than a pair of fillets. And the charter captains have recognized that, you know, that that is a wonderful thing that when they start recognizing that um, people are coming out to get fish to bring home. But on the same hand, 
they're coming out for a chance to catch a fish that that is bigger than anything they've ever seen before um, in terms of that species. And, and nobody wants to take away somebody else's right to, to do that. So, you know, it's been really encouraging that, um, I say, and, and blackfish are such a great option because they do release well. Um, you know, same thing. We'll have the captains later in the season. They'll really encourage their clients to take their time reeling in the big blackfish. If, if they're fishing in deep, deep water environments, once you've got them up off the bottom, 10 to 15 feet, you don't need to, to go insane cranking them the last 80. Like you can take your time a bit. Um, and so you'll, you'll notice that they're, they're trying to get them to be a little more patient so coming up so that yeah. they don't, yeah, they don't have quite as much trauma. Although Todd, generally speaking, do pretty well. Um, they may not look the greatest when they come up at first, but they, they go right back down and they seem to repressurize and, and acclimates um, that the they fact, can bite a hook again 15 minutes later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, they, they really don't seem overly traumatized as much as it looks, you know, they've got to have a headache. Uh, but as much as, as they, they look in rough shape on times coming up, um, they really seem to do fine. Um, we don't vent them. You know, they, they, they don't seem to need to be vented. They, they'll get back down. Um, you just have to be, be a little bit gentle with them when you get them in the boat. But um, anyway, it's, it's been wonderful to see that captains and, and recreational anglers, not just captains. That, that's the other thing. This has really taken off with recreational anglers um, being excited about letting these large fish go and, and still, still being able to participate in the fishery. So, so tell us the story here, Greg, right? So you you know, there was, there was this, um, this kind of sea change, right? Over, over several years, people were like, wait a minute, you know, these are our fish things seem like they're okay right now, but you know, we're concerned. There are a lot of these big fish that are being taken out of, taken out of the system. Um, so what exactly, you know, I guess in terms of like regulations, in terms of what was right. on the table, kind of like what, what were you guys trying to make happen that that wasn't already occurring? Right. So in, in Rhode Island, the way it works, there, there's three different sets of meetings. If you want to try to affect real change in the state legislatively with fishing, there's workshops where you can kind of, you know, throw stuff against the wall a little bit, see what sticks. Um, Rhode Island's great because they'll bring their biologists and their fisheries managers a lot of times to these workshops. And so they can help you a bit craft something that that actually makes sense, you know, and that falls within numbers often. Like, you know, so that in Rhode Island, we did that. We took a group of charter captains. We took a group of RISA members. And we sat down with some of the biologists and some of the fisheries managers in the state. And we said, listen, we've got a couple concerns. One of them is that Rhode Island in the fall goes to five. The bag limit bumps up to five. And that, our thought was, was almost too attractive. That we have, Rhode Island's in proximity of so many other states. You know, we have New York and Montauk. We, we have Connecticut, obviously. We have Massachusetts. Um, and the Rhode Island fishery is so strong that when it bumps up to five. And there's a minimum, there's bag, a minimum size with that too, right? Yeah, right. 16 inches yeah. at five. And so that has created a lot of extra attention in Rhode Island, that, that five fish limit. And so what, one of the things we wanted to do was try, as much as we want to welcome everybody, we wanted to try to take a little bit of the pressure off of Rhode Island. And, and not have that five fish bag limit. We've got a bunch of head boats that show up here now strictly for the five fish season. They, they literally arrive, you know, 
at the docks the day before Rhode Island goes to five fish and they leave when it ends. We weren't crazy about that. I mean, I respect everybody's right to, to do that. But when you start seeing all these out-of-state headboats just showing up for the five fish season, it does kind of make you think, geez, I'm not sure everybody has the best interest of the fish at heart here. Um, so one of the things we wanted to try to do was take pressure off that. And then the second thing we wanted to do was recognize that these big fish are special, that that not every state has these multiple 10, 12, 15, 20-pound blackfish, um, but that we had these charter captains that came to the meeting and said, listen, not that we're saying we're good, but if if you we've got the ability to wipe these fish out, like, you know, them collectively. I mean, not just them as a couple anglers, but what they were saying was the good tog anglers right now between the electronics and the gear, if that was their goal, they could do it. And they're like, if it's not our goal, we don't want to do that. Um, but, But something has to be done because there are people that just don't recognize that value in these fish. So those were our two goals when we sat down with the state. And we... We were able to craft some legislation that came up with reducing the fall bag limit from five to four, and then also out of the bag limit, um, only allow one fish to be over 21 inches. So kind of like a slot, but not really a slot in the sense that you could allow, an you know, it allowed for one overage. I guess you could say a slot would be 16 to 21 with one over. It was depending on what word did you, you know, verbiage you wanted to use on it. It it and that was what came out of the workshop. And we took that to our members and we put it out on social media. And this and was with, this was what late twenty twenty one, early twenty twenty two. Is that right? Right. Yes. Yep. And so we talked to tackle shop owners. You know, we kind of did our our due diligence a bit and said, "Listen, guys, this is what we're thinking." And you know, we don't want to hurt your sales. We don't want to hurt your business. In fact, we'd like to continue your your business um, as opposed to have it, you know, burn out. And and we found that there was a, a not universal, but a wide scale support for that measure that that people felt that a four fish bag limit in the fall w- was still going to give you eight nice fillets if you chose to do that um, and that you could still catch one big fish. You could still be in tournaments. You could still set a club record, your personal record, you know, your state. We had the Rhode Island state record was broken last year. Um, we didn't want to take away anybody else's chance to do that. Um, so that was one of our goals to, to not eliminate the chance to catch a state record. As um, just as an aside, didn't you, uh, didn't you go on tour with that big tog last year? I thought you, I thought I saw yeah. you on some, on some live TV with a, with a mount of a big tog. Yeah, that 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 blackfish has uh has become very popular. Yep, it was it was on live TV a few times, and you know they're such a neat fish when people see them uh, between their teeth sticking out, you know, all over the place, and kind of that big chin. Uh, they the blackfish are very photogenic in their own way. They got a lot of personality, um, as I think you said yeah, earlier. No, yeah, they do. Hundred percent. Sorry, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to yeah. take you off track there, nope. but I think your point nope. is well taken. Yeah, about there being yeah. so, those big fish. So, so then, so we attended the the hearings and so many folks, you know, that's always kind of, I think as a, when you're trying to get legislation passed for me, Willie, anyway, I always hold my breath at the hearings because lots of folks when you're out and about, or certainly on social media may support a cause, but at the hearings, 
you really need folks to be there and you need folks to be willing to speak up. And it's a little intimidating if you've never, if you're not one for public speaking and if you've never attended a fisheries hearing, it's, you know, it's not the the most comfortable thing perhaps for people that aren't used to that. So I I was really kind of had my fingers crossed and held my breath the night of the hearing and Rhode Island at the time. This was early February, right? I remember that you were really kind of rallying the troops to to be vocal. It was both, it was both in person and virtual, right? People could provide their comments. Right. So Rhode Island, which was, which turned out to, I think, be to our favor, actually. Rhode Island at the time was doing hybrid meetings where you could log on in Zoom and you could also um, attend the meeting live. And we had a really phenomenal turn. You know, we, we forwarded the link. We kind of talked everybody through that might be interested, you know, how this is going to work, try to give them a little heads up. Um and I, so hopefully, I think that was part of it. You know, we tried to let people know, okay, this is going to be a little different than what you're used to if you've not attended hearings before. Um, but we provided the link and and kind of had a little prep session, like to just give people some info ahead of time, you know, what to expect. And then we headed off to the the hearing in person. And I think that the first thing that was noticed was the 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 so Rhode Island DEM holds the hearings not the council that actually votes. Um, DEM is in charge of the workshops and the hearings them, and, and the hearings. And just to interject, DEM is the Department of Environmental Management, so the state yep, fishery which managers. is our fishing game, yep. our, our crew here. And um, you can see the first thing that was noticed was they're not used to, I mean, unless there's a striped bass issue, you know, an immediate striped bass issue up, if they get 20 people at a hearing usually, many times that's about par for the course. Well, they had, we had the uh, University of Rhode Island auditorium close to packed. Like it was really neat. People came out of the woodwork. Um, and there were a couple other issues. We also had a sea bass issue that we were um, pushing as well and a fluke thing. So it wasn't strictly because of the sea of the tog, but it, it was probably the vast majority of it was related to the, the blackfish issue. Um, and so the hearing went and there were other proposals, status quo, right? Always wins. Um, you know, is always there. And the folks that pushed for status quo, the real issue was the science wasn't saying we had to take a cut, right? I mean, that was the, what was unique about this from the get-go was that this wasn't one of those where the state said, okay, everybody, you have to take a fish, a, a cut. How do you want to do it? And that's right. 90% of the time when you're at these hearings, it's because the either mid-Atlantic states or the Atlantic states marine fisheries count, you know, somebody has said, hey, you caught too many fish. You got to change. Right. Back to back to the reactionary piece. Right. Where it's like you've got to do something because we're already not in a good place. Yeah. Right. And so what was so unique about this one is what they really didn't expect was that there was no push for there was push for sea bass and other things, but there was no push for tog. And yet here we all were. And um, and so it was kind of neat. So the the other option was do nothing, um, you know, and we just really pushed that that wasn't what we wanted to do. And our whole point was, if we do nothing now, we will end up back here having to do something and it will be too late because we will have lost this, this wonder, you know, part of this wonderful fishery. Um, and it was just so neat to see these captains and everybody speak up and say, you know, I, I don't want to lose this fishery. Um, on top of the fact that the other point we tried to make was there's nothing left to backstop it. In New England, if you lose TOG in the fall, unless we get striped bass back or when we get, you know, until we get striped bass back, 
um, there's not much else in the fall. Like, like there's nothing left to backstop Tog if we lose Tog. So, so that was probably, you know, our other push was, Hey guys, like there's nothing behind it. You know, if, if this collapses, where are we going to go from here? Um, so that was the hearing and, and we generated, I, I want to say over almost 200 different, you know, between comments and which for our state of Rhode wow. Island. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. Uh, that's a pretty substantial number for sure. Yeah, no, it was amazing. It was amazing between the in-person comments, the, the written in comment, you know, the public comment period after and the zoom comments, it was really neat. Um, and then four weeks later we had the council vote, which as you know, you know, I go into these things and I'm, I shouldn't be that jaded because I'm new, uh, <laughs> but I kind of know how they Hey, you skipped ahead a few time. steps there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've been to enough of them to kind of, and and the council, a couple members didn't show up that night, which may or may not have been to our advantage, but there was enough for a quorum. So they, they had, and the state broke out. I think they kind of recognized, A, Blackfish was going to be special and B, there was still some some things in the works with I think Fluke and Seabass both at that time, so they didn't want to wait. So we had it was a one vote only night. It was we were there for Tatag, which in itself was kind of unique to have a fisheries council meet for one fish for one vote. Um, and we had good attendance at that too, even though they're not really designed for public comment. The, the council vote is essentially just that open to the public. But we were fortunate enough to be able to speak a little bit um, just for a few minutes. And, you know, we basically asked the council before they voted to, to be bold, that we, we acknowledged right away that the math didn't say that we needed to do this, but that if we wait for the math to say that, um, we will be, you know, a day late and a dollar short on, on protecting this, particularly on protecting the special part of this fishery. Um, that that we really felt is what makes it unique and, and what we wanted to protect. And long story short, the other status quo got the first vote, and I thought, oh boy, this is going to be like a thirty second hearing because I don't think the gavel had come down from the chairman before there was a motion on the table to vote for status quo. And I really thought I had brought all these people to this room, like I've got everybody's hopes up, and that's going to be literally it. 30, yeah. 30 seconds. We're going to just be done. Um, and there was a little maneuvering. Somebody knew some Robert's rules better than I did. And anyway, we were allowed to speak, even though the vote was on the table. Once the vote was on the table, we were allowed to speak a little bit. So that was kind of an interesting thing. So to be clear, uh, Greg, are you on the council? No. Okay. No, I'm not on the council. Um, so I was just a concerned citizen at okay. this point, okay. right? And and I thought it was just going to be a you know literally this quick night. But we were able to, with a little maneuvering, we were able to speak. And we just said to the council, you know, we we know like that that the math doesn't yet say this, but we also know what we see, and and these fish are our fish, and you know we kind of appealed to them both both to to protect fish and to do something that had never been done before, which was to vote to restrict fishing on a fish that the math didn't yet say needed to be done. Um, and anyway, long story short, the other vote failed two to four, the the status quo vote, because that was already on the table. Couldn't stop that from happening. And when it failed, I'm like, oh boy. Like, I, you know, I was kind of like, oh my gosh, I maybe? And then our position was was brought to the, you know, brought to a vote and seconded. And sure enough, we won four to two. 
And it, it was just the most amazing. People were just almost stunned because <laughs> it just doesn't happen. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we'll, we'll get into kind of the, the, the postmortem and the aftermath yeah. of that. But I mean, just to pause right there. I mean, what a, what a victory. And again, I think, you know, the inertia of, you know, as you've said, there's always, you know, there's a lag, right? It, it, things are never occurring in real time when it comes to the science. And I think, you know, understanding those trends, either for better or for worse, um, you know, you'll often have people lamenting that the science is lagging behind um, when a stock is increasing, but you never, you, you rarely hear that argument when a stock is decreasing. Um, right. And so it, it's really great to hear that. And I think to your point, right, it's a balance. I mean, you know, obviously to have the most fish in the water, you would have no harvest, but uh, you know, you need to find that balance of what is, what is, what is kind of the greatest good for the greatest number in terms of balancing folks who want to, you know, who want to keep some fish with folks who want to catch a lot of fish and figuring that out. Um, yep. And so it's certainly a testament to your efforts and to that general philosophy that, that this vote went your way. Yeah. And, and to, to boost the other thing that helped was I think just that literally the day before some early, um, fishing effort analysis had come through and that showed a 230% increase in blackfish pressure. Now that didn't necessarily equate, they hadn't, they still, I don't think have actually finished the math to say what that actually meant in terms of catch rates and quota, but they, they had finalized effort or at least raw data effort which showed a big increase. So we were able to, even though that didn't technically translate into overfishing or, you know, over harvest, it, it certainly looked as if that might be coming. And, and it was you know, a testament to your point of, you know, this is Rhode Island yeah. now a, a tog destination, right? And so that's, that's yeah. what happens. You become a magnet for people from all over the place. Um, that, so the council that knew out. that, right. You know, we were able to, we were able to get that entered into the the record, even though it was raw data and it, and it didn't, you know, the, didn't equate to to technical overfishing. It certainly appeared as if if you increase effort two hundred and thirty percent, you can bet when the math is finally done, it's probably going to be ugly. Yeah. So boy, were we excited with that vote. So we all went home. We patted ourselves on the back. We perhaps had a cold one on the way home that night, and and things were good. And then we started hearing some rumblings, you know, and and oh, so so unfortunately. Unfortunately, right before the vote, the state of Rhode Island, the DEM, you know, who I respect greatly, came out and said they were clearly against our proposal. So I was like, oof. So that was the other reason why I didn't think it would pass. But the and what was their, their what was their um, rationale for that? So they wanted to be purely science based, and and which I understood, you know, as we had acknowledged, the science didn't yet say we had to take a cut. So. I kind of, I respected that. I wasn't in agreement with it, but I respected it. And then they also started to say, because Rhode Island, as we mentioned early in this podcast, is tied in with Massachusetts in, in, in the TOG, the, the quota system, Massachusetts might feel that us reducing our limits on TOG would somehow push pressure towards them and they might not appreciate that. So there were kind of two little things that started to crop up. Um, and, and then the other part of that is at the ASFMC level, there started to be talk about us being out of compliance. And the funny thing was the out of compliance would have been because we were being too restrictive and not catching enough fish. 
um, which which almost boggles the mind that that's out of compliance. But they basically started to indicate apparently that, um, you know, if we upset the apple cart with this and if Massachusetts objected, that that technically um, our compliance issue with the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Council would have been that we made a unilateral decision that didn't include Massachusetts. And Rhode Island started to feel, I guess, they put out some feelers and um, apparently Mass indicated that they might, in fact, formally object. And the Atlantic States indicated that if that happened, more than likely, we would be found out of compliance. Uh, of course, nobody could say officially because it hadn't happened and, you know, votes have to take place. But the indication was we would, Rhode Island as a state would probably be found out of compliance if, if these dominoes fell. So our hope was Rhode Island was willing to kind of roll the dice here and at least see, um, because we figured that was a strong position that we were trying to protect fish that, you know, to be found out of compliance for protecting fish would probably be a first in uh, Atlantic <laughs> States Marine Fishery Council history. Not, not, not the worst distinction, right? Right. You know, that was what we tried to pitch. But um, Rhode Island, in the end, didn't didn't have the stomach for that. So unfortunately, we, we received a letter that the head director of DEM, I guess, on behalf of the governor writes um, after these council votes where he has to either accept the, the vote or or not. So sure enough, four weeks later, we we got a, a letter from the director of um, marine fisheries in Rhode Island. And they, as is their right, they overruled the council vote. And so they took back kind of our, you know, first ever conservation, you know, win in terms of a a state voting to restrict the fishery when it didn't have to. But he did two things. He first of all said that Rhode Island had met with Massachusetts and they agreed to joint talks to try to find something that Massachusetts would also support. Um, and then what he did was he, however, said that he believed strongly enough in us being proactive and that the blackfish fishery is special in Rhode Island. And he reinstituted half of the commission vote, which was to limit trophy blackfish to only one over 21 inches out of the current bag limit. So in the end, we literally, Rhode Island became the first state in the Northeast to put any kind of uh, priority or, you know, recognize the value of trophy blackfish. And we now have um, a one over 21 inch restriction on the bag limit. So, so in the end, it, it, it was a good win. It yeah, wasn't so everything. It's, it's, it's still a victory, right? And I mean, again, yeah. given the, given that monumental task of, you know, moving the needle when there's so much inertia against that. Right. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty, a pretty big deal. I would say. We, we are, we're very happy. It took me a little minute to get over the sting of, of losing, you know, everything. Um, but yeah, I, I, in the end to have Rhode Island recognize that, that there, there really is value in these large blackfish and that it is something that gets people excited, brings people to the state to fish um, and that we didn't want to lose that. And to, to acknowledge that there's times we're being proactive, you know, even though the way we look at science right now may not technically say we have to do something um, for the governor, for the director of DM and the governor to recognize that that this was a case that maybe a little bit of proactiveness 
would go a long way. We were, we were excited about that and we still are. Yeah, I think, I mean, as you should be. And so moving forward, so starting this fall, right, Greg? So instead of it being five fish at 16 inches, it's going to be five fish at 16 inches, but only one of those five can be over 21. Is that right? Yep. Right. And technically this spring too. So this spring we're at three fish. And I think as of May 1st, the 21 inch part goes into effect, which, which in Rhode Island um, is, is technically you can blackfish in April. And, and there are a few folks that get a few, but the majority of our spring black fishery is May. And then it'll shut down until the fall. And then when it shuts down in the fall, it'll start at three again at, with only one over 21. And then in the late fall, it will bump up to five still, but only one of them can be over 21. So, and in the meantime, hopefully we'll, we'll have some, you know, we'll, we'll be at the table with Massachusetts and and see how they feel about this. And, and maybe we can find something as well to, to work with them that wouldn't put us out of compliance um, with Massachusetts. So we're hopeful that there's enough of a push that will not only get them to the table, but hopefully find some areas we can we can agree on. So it's an ongoing thing, but at least we've we've established up front that yeah, you, um, you, you got a foothold, right? And you got yeah. and I mean I think the most important part is you started the dialogue. I mean, obviously having a positive outcome on the regulatory side is awesome and you guys got that done. But I mean, even just getting all those people, you know engaged and 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 participating in the process to really fight for what they wanted i mean that's a big victory in and of itself so i mean congratulations for 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 getting that done thanks and and i'm hopeful that not only other states see this but you know the coalition that we built with with tech a a lot what what you guys have done a lot what aga has done is to find common ground with tackle shops with recreational anglers with guides um, you know, with charter captains and, and we were able to do that with this fish. Um, as you know, it's, it's certainly not easy. And and there's some things that just don't lend itself to it, but this was one that did. And it was neat to build a coalition kind of beyond our own boundaries of our own members. Um, it was very rewarding. And I, I think with this progress, hopefully other States will see, you know, that you can do something like this. Um, and I'm hopeful that, we can continue to have enough momentum for both other issues moving forward. Now, now that people feel like they, they did have a say and, and it did make a bit of a difference. Um, I'm hopeful that same level of enthusiasm moves forward. And that was always my worry was it, if it didn't work or if it got totally overturned, the last thing I wanted to do was disenfranchise all, not only our members, but the other folks that yeah, you don't want people throwing their hands up in the air saying, ah, screw it. I don't want it. You know, yep. I, it doesn't matter what I do. I mean, it's obviously super gratifying to, to be part of something and then actually get something out of it. So that's, it's a, uh, you know, great, as you said, for the future and for, for building momentum for future actions and, and getting these people to, to keep being part of it. Yep. So, so yeah, no, that, I think that about says it. Awesome. Well, Greg, it's been great having you here on the guidepost. I I look forward to inviting myself up fishing this coming fall, Um, you know, losing a couple of your jigs, you know, probably destroying some of your other tackle. I'm pretty good at that when I go on other people's boats. So um, looking forward to it. Um, You know, in the meantime, hopefully the the spring fishery treats you well and looking forward to continuing to work with you, you know, and all the issues that we work on together. 